Okay, y'all. Uh, you can go ahead and grab your seats. Yeah, you guys can go ahead and grab your seats. Uh, we're going to get started here. And I'm going to invite Ellie to come up. Ellie is going to be our reader for us this morning. Yes, Ellie. Uh, you guys may know we have jumped into a new sermon series for the fall, and we're going to be walking through the book of Revelation. Ooh, so you can expect to see cool graphics up behind me with eagles and flags. No, that is not where we're going. If you missed last week and you were concerned about the fact that we're in the book of Revelation, you can, uh, you can listen back last week to hear about some of the safety bars that the Scripture itself it kind of installs for us to keep us on this theological roller coaster without ending up in some weird, uh, some weird theological ditches. So uh, Ellie's going to come up, and she's going to read for us out of Revelation 1. So if you have your Bibles, you can open there. It'll also be up on the screen behind her. Okay. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Ellie. Will you take that and take this with you, too? Pray with me. Father, we, uh, we're thankful for your word. God, we confess uh, that we don't always know what it means, uh, especially when we come to a book like this. And yet, Lord, we come to it uh, saying that we believe. Help our unbelief. Lord, would you make clear uh, what you want to make clear for us this morning. And we pray these things uh, in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen. So let me tell you, kind of our thesis for this morning is the revelation of Jesus Christ drives out fear. The revelation or the revealing of Jesus Christ drives out fear. So that's our, that's our summary for the morning. We're going to break that into a few different chunks. First, we're going to talk about uh, Revelation. What is it? Then we're going to talk about Jesus Christ. And then we're going to talk about how the revelation of Jesus Christ drives out fear. Good. Okay. You guys are with me this morning. We're practicing the school thing, right? Uh, 
So let's talk first about this idea of revelation. We see it here in, in the first, uh, just the, even the first words of our passage. It says, the revelation of Jesus Christ. We've got to talk about what is a revelation, because it means something very specific. And we touched on this a little bit last week, that for us to kind of get into this book of revelation, we've got to understand uh, what, what its genre is, like what the book is about, how the people who first received it understood it. And when it says that it is a revelation, this word revelation, really what it means is uncovering. That this book is an uncovering. It's a revealing of something. But it helps us see uh, the, the, the deeper reality of what's unfolding all around us. And at first that can sound strange, like something we're not familiar with. But in fact, that's something that we're very familiar with. This idea of kind of seeing beyond the scene. Like, I'm reading this book right now called The Gospel of Wellness, and it's by this woman who was a, a reporter for various magazines, including Fortune Magazine, and, and she covered the wellness industry, the multi-billion dollar wellness industry for a long time. And what she does in this book is she kind of pulls back the layers. Like, the first chapter is, uh, is titled, uh, Why the Heck Is It Always Yoga?, and what she's saying is in all of these scenarios, that the, the answer that it seems like is served up to society and often to women is that, hey, if you're stressed out, what you should do is just practice mindfulness and meditate. She's saying, hey, there's something uh, more going on here. Like, there's a reason that we're all feeling stressed out. And rather than saying, oh, you should just go practice yoga, maybe it'd be better if we dealt with the underlying issues that are causing all of this stress in the first place. Right? So we're used to kind of seeing that way, that kind of investigative journalism that pulls back the cover and says, hey, look, pay attention to what's happening under the surface. That's what the book of Revelation is doing. It's an uncovering. And it's saying, hey, let, let's, pull, let's pull back the curtain for a moment and realize that we are living in a spiritual world. See, John, John didn't have the, the, these separate categories of natural and supernatural. That John lived in a world, the people who got this book lived in a world where the natural and supernatural were one world. So that's kind of a way that we're at a disadvantage here, is that we live in what one sociologist, Charles Taylor, he says, uh, within the imminent frame. And that imminent frame can be described like this. It's a constructed social space that frames our lives entirely within a natural rather than supernatural order. It's the circumscribed space of modern social imagination that precludes transcendence. That's a lot of large sociological words. Basically what it means is that the way that we are taught to experience life, it's as if we, we, are, we live in this bubble where nothing supernatural can ever come into that bubble. That everything that happens has to have a natural, clear, scientifically explainable explanation. And yet, we all have these moments where it feels like there are things that kind of poke into that bubble and disrupt it. It's like, oh, maybe there is something going, out, going on outside of this bubble, something supernatural that comes into it, but we have a really hard time understanding that because our social imagination is conditioned to say, all that exists, the only inputs that you can consider are those that are material and measurable by science. So what Revelation does, it's an uncovering. It says, hey, it's, it's not just material. There are other things that are happening in this world. There's, there's spiritual forces, spiritual beings at work. There's a God who is real and exists and is, is actually very interested in what is unfolding in the world. So Revelation is an uncovering. But, but John already got that. So for the pe people like John, the guy who received this, this, uh, these visions and who gave them to the people in these churches that he was writing to, this was also an uncovering and a revealing for them. 
that there were things in their day-to-day lives that they needed to have the covers pulled back on to be woken up to the deeper reality that was unfolding all around them. And in that sense, we're very similar to John's original audience. And John uses two kind of very specific biblical uh, genres or, or ways of communicating to help pull back the curtain on reality. And the first is the prophetic. So we see that in verse 3. It says, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. Now, when we think about prophecy, we think about fortune telling, right? Like, are any of you Harry Potter fans? Okay, there's like the hall, the, 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 the hall of mysteries, and, and the, the prophecies get knocked off the shelves, and all of these like very specific fortunes get kind of like released into the air. That's how we think about prophecy. That is not the biblical way of thinking about prophecy, okay? So, just if, if you think about reading in the Old Testament, prophets like Isaiah, What Isaiah was doing is he was speaking into a very specific cultural context, and he was saying, hey, everything around you looks good on the surface. It's like y'all are in the temple, you're sacrificing to God, you're doing the thing, you're checking the boxes, uh, and you're all actually very wealthy, or many of you are very wealthy, you're very comfortable. And so you think that because you're checking the boxes with God, because you're comfy, because you're, you're wealthy, you think that everything is going great. And Isaiah says, it's not true. It says, actually, God is being very patient with you because there is all kinds of injustice operating just under the surface, but you don't want to see it. And so as a prophet of God, he's pulling back the covers and he's saying, you've got to look at what's really going on here, and it's not good. And there's an element of the future that gets brought into that very specific context because Isaiah says, if you don't repent, what's going to happen is you're going to be taken into exile. So there is that future component to what the prophet is saying, but you can see it's very connected to what is happening in that moment. And then he provides a hope. If, if, if you disobey, if you, if you refuse to repent, you'll be taken into exile. But then one day God will return you to the land. And we know that that, that prophecy, it, it, it comes true. Right? The people are taken into captivity and then at some point are also returned back to the land. But we also know that these, the, the prophecies of Scripture, uh, they're fulfilled on different time horizons. So the people of Israel are brought back from captivity back into Israel. And yet there were all these prophecies that Isaiah spoke, all of these promises about what it would be like to be back in the land that didn't quite reach the fulfillment that the people wanted them to reach. The promises were a little bit too good almost to be fulfilled on their return from exile. And that's because built into that prophecy is a look not only to that return from exile, but to the ultimate return from exile when the new heavens and the new earth come together. So that's, that's the, prof- <laughs> there's a lot there, right? But, but that's kind of the prophetic frame that is being applied here in Revelation. That there's a pulling back that John is saying, pay attention to what's happening right around you. And there's some future components to what I'm talking about here. And there's some ways that those future components are going to come true kind of as you wait for Jesus. And there's also a day that they're going to come fully true. So the prophetic is a part of what we're, we're working with here in Revelation The uncovering is, is more than prophetic. The, this, uh, this uncovering also involves this very powerful use of imagery. So I got uh, the Prospectus for Life magazine, which started being published in 1936, a magazine that was, that was all and pretty much only pictures. 
And as the guy who started this magazine was, was pitching the magazine, this is how he pitched it. He said, to see the purpose, to see life, to see the world, to eyewitness great events, to watch the faces of the poor and the gestures of the proud, to see strange things, machines, armies, multitudes, shadows in the jungle and on the moon, to see man's work, his paintings, towers and discoveries, to see things thousands of miles away, things hidden behind walls and within rooms, things dangerous to come to, the women that men love and many children, to see and take pleasure in seeing, to see and be amazed, to see and be instructed. It takes for this field all the world which may be known by seeing and promises to reveal every week aspects of human life and work which have never before been seen by the camera's miraculous second sight. What the author of this prospectus is saying is that there's a way that images can capture reality in a way that our words struggle to do. So Revelation is a book of images, and these images are used to uncover what's true. And the biblical genre for that is apocalypse. That's the kind of literature that uses these kinds of really dense images to uncover what's true. And these images, when we read through Revelation, if you've ever read through Revelation, they can sound like someone was on um, something, right, when they were getting these images, because they seem kind of so out of place to the way that we think about and visualize the world. Of course, because we have a totally different imagination. Our imagination is conditioned by so many other pictures. But the pictures that are given us in Revelation, they are full of Old Testament imagery. Professional Christians have an impossible time counting the amount of connections between Revelation and the Old Testament. Thousands upon, th like if you're looking at, the, at your Bible and the cross-references, you know, the section where it's like, well, this verse references this verse. Your Bible can't contain all of the cross-references that are in Revelation to the Old Testament. And even to parts of the New Testament because it's saturated with biblical imagery and also draws on the imagery of the time, of the Greco-Roman world, of folk tales from that time. So for us to kind of unpack this imagery, it's going to take some time. And the invitation is that we would let it take the time that it takes. Like I was in the Frist the other day looking at this photo exhibit, and as I was sitting looking at one of these pictures, uh, there were people who came through with their phones and just filmed every photo in the room and then left. <laughs> or who came in and took a picture of each picture and then left. And I thought, I don't, I'm not an art critic, but I feel like we're kind of missing the point here, guys, you know? <laughs> That, that the invitation of a work of art is that we would come and that we would sit in front of it and that as we take time to look at something beautiful, that that beautiful image would pull back layers of our own heart. But that takes time. And what these first verses promise is that there is blessing for us as the people of God. There's truth that God has for us as we take time to unpack those images. We're not going to get to every image in the book of Revelation uh, in this sermon series. You know that? There's just not time. You're free to read it on your own. And even the images that we talk about in here would encourage you, man, soak in them during the week. And the questions and the weirdness and all of that, read the books and the articles or whatever you want to read, but just know that getting the, the, the facts about them, that's not always uh, the main focus. That sitting, like we're going to do this morning with this picture of the ascended Christ, sitting with it, letting it sink into you, and that's the call of this book. 
That's a revelation. So we just got the first word of our thesis for the morning, okay? The revelation of Jesus Christ. That's how our passage this morning starts. It's how the book of Revelation starts. The revelation of Jesus Christ. What it's telling us is, first, who the revelation is from. Now, this book of Revelation is given to us from Jesus. But it's more than from Jesus. It's a revelation of Jesus. It's a revelation about Jesus. We talked about this last week, that Revelation is, a, is an incredibly theocentric book. It's a book that's all about God. And specifically, it's about God. It's about the person and the work of Jesus Christ. So if you're reading through Revelation and it seems like the main theme is something else other than Jesus, you're missing it. That what Revelation does is it uncovers who Jesus is. To see Christ clearly, and that's at the heart of what it means to be a Christian, isn't it? And let's just all admit, we all have some ways of seeing Jesus that are probably not matched up with reality. There's this song that I don't know how Spotify recommended it to me a few years ago, but uh, it's called Chillin' on the Beach with my best friend, Jesus Christ, okay? <laughs> at first I thought it was very funny, and then I was a little bit offended, but we can laugh about it here together, okay? <clears throat> The chorus of the song is chilling on the beach <clears throat> with my best friend, Jesus Christ. And then it under, underneath it says, drinking Bud Lights, drinking Bud Lights, okay? <laughs> going, out for, going out for beers, but not too many beers with Jesus Christ. <laughs> Jesus came down from heaven, just like bread without leaven. I'm talking manna from the sky, gotta love your vibes, chilling on the beach with Jesus Christ. Okay. Uh, so we can hear that and think that's like, that's off, you know, a little bit. And yet, it's funny because it's a little bit true. Especially if you've like been raised around the church, maybe like if you went to church camp, you know. I love church camp for the record, but you, you can kind of have that effect on you. It's like, oh, Jesus, he's like, he's your buddy, he's your pal. And like, there are some, there are some rules, suggestions about your life, but like, don't really worry about it. You know, he's just there to like, Maybe as we grow up, maybe that idea changes a little bit. Like maybe Jesus is the person who gives you uh, the mantras to meditate on in your mindfulness sessions. That the point of Jesus is to bring emotional calm and stability into your life. Now, can Jesus do that? Yeah. Is that like, is that, is that all that Jesus is? Jesus is a social justice warrior. Is, does Jesus care about justice? Yeah way more than we do, way more than the people who care about it the most care about it. And, and yet, there's a way that, that we could care about that that would, that would obscure our own responsibilities or our own morality in that, in that larger uh, scenario. Like Jesus is he's, he's more than that, and he has a very specific way of being about that, of course. And we get in these conversations where people will start talking about my Jesus, and sometimes there's a way of talking about my Jesus that's very appropriate, right, because we have a personal relationship with Jesus. But there are other ways that we talk about Jesus that, that, that are more comparative. Well, my Jesus, and what I'm saying is, well, my Jesus compared to your Jesus. My Jesus would never fill in the blank. It, but it is, it's only one Jesus, right? There's my Jesus wouldn't, but, but what we're saying is, well, you, well, your Jesus is different. But what we have to recognize is there is only one Jesus, one true and real Jesus. And so the question we have to ask ourselves is, does our picture of Jesus conform to the picture of Jesus laid out for us in the Scriptures? 
And when we do that, what we're going to find is that we're all going to be convicted. We're all going to find that there are parts of our view of Jesus that need to be corrected. And, and what Jesus offers us in the book of Revelation is an uncovering of who he is that brings into focus uh, elements that maybe we wouldn't get without it. That the gospels are necessary for us to see Jesus as God intended us to see him. And this picture in Revelation is necessary for us to see Jesus as God intended us to see him as he is even now uh, in heaven. In heaven, not as this, this place that we can get to through some kind of uh, geographic travel, but heaven as in the reality that is sitting just under our reality that when we pull back, we, we see all around us. That's the Jesus that is being revealed. It's the Jesus that we read about in Revelation, starting in verse 12. Will you guys close your eyes? I'm going to read this picture of Jesus to you, and I want you just to hear it and to, to, to picture it. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in full strength. Okay, you can open your eyes. That's the picture of Jesus that John is laying out for us. I'm gonna, we're going to take a minute to unpack a, f a few of those images. And, I, and guys, I'm just going to tell you, one of the things that is hardest about preaching this book is that it, it can seem like my goal, I, I'm, I'm wrestling with this, is to explain the image to you so then you get it. But to do that, in a sense, makes the image unnecessary. But the image is necessary, because otherwise, they just would have told us what we needed to know. And so what I hope you hear in me explaining or unpacking the image is the invitation for you to sit deeper in the imagery of the image, in the imagery of the picture, in the truth that it's working to convey. Like when it says that Jesus' hair is white like snow, like what, does this mean Jesus is old? Like what does this mean, right? Like mine, yes. <laughs> what it means is that uh, Jesus is everlasting. That's part of the whiteness of the hair is that he goes, there was no beginning and there is no wind. And this picture of his, of his hair like snow in Daniel 7, this imagery uh, is used to describe the Ancient of Days, which is God the Father. And so what this imagery is showing us is that Jesus is of the same essence as God the Father. He is God. When it says that, that, that this Jesus has feet like burnished bronze, again, we're pulling, we're pulling forward from Daniel 7, or from the book of Daniel. Right in the beginning of Daniel, there's this king, Nebuchadnezzar, who has a dream of this giant statue, and there's a lot going on, but the feet of that statue are iron mixed with clay. And the whole point of that is that all of the kingdoms of the world are set on very shaky foundations. That's the iron and the clay. It's, it's, it's not stable. Jesus' feet are not like iron and clay. Jesus' feet are very stable. They're burnished bronze. The, the weight of, of God's kingdom can sit on his shoulders and it's incredibly stable. That's our Jesus. 
Jesus is wearing this robe with a golden sash. This is, it's the garments that a, that a priest would wear, the garments that a king would wear. And, and Daryl Johnson, this guy in Discipleship on the Edge, this book that has been really helpful for me in this, he talks about how uh, the waistband, or the, 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 the band around the waist is what you wear when work is going to be done. You raise it up to your chest when the work is finished. That Jesus' priestly work on our behalf is finished. His eyes are like, are like burning fire. And all throughout Scripture, this, this metaphor of fire is used to describe uh, the process of purification or of refining. That when we look at Jesus, that, what, that when we catch his gaze, that that, that, that gaze, it sees, it sees through us, it sees us through all of the webs of image that we spin around ourselves, it cuts through all of that, and he sees us just as we are, and he sees us just as we are with the desire to love us and also to change us, to make us more of who we were created to be. But that's what it means to look into eyes that are blazing with fire. That's our Jesus. His face was shining like the sun in full strength. Did any of you go to the Nashville SC game last night? A few of you, right? People played, paid a lot of money last night to bask in the glory of Messi. And they've been paying it for the last several weeks. I don't know a lot about soccer or football, as you might know it, right? But, but Messi is, he is the best soccer player in the entire world. Yeah, and he, and he came to the States to play in our kind of like humble little league and in a sense to shower his glory upon us, <laughs> to, to let us see this is what it looks like when a master among men descends to kind of our backwater of the soccer universe and, 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 and lets us behold what real soccer looks like. Guys, that's how the commentators were talking about it last night. I was like, hey, you know, like we are a part of this game too, Right? He's good too, right? But, but Messi is it. And, 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 uh, and there's this sense of you just, you're watching people pay for, you're watching people bask in his glory, even when he finished the game, just like looking, it was different than everyone else's faces. This is a man who has won 44 trophies, okay? He knows glory. And to come into his presence is to experience something special, to get a taste of something. Now we know, in the grand scheme of things, one day, Messi will lay down all 44 of those trophies at the feet of Jesus, just like all of us will do. And his glory will be nothing compared to the glory of the risen Christ that we see in this passage. That John sees when he looks at Jesus' face and it's like the sun shining in full strength. And the Jesus that John sees is among these lampstands and the lampstands are the churches. Jesus is here among us, even now. Like even right now, while you were thinking about the brunch that you would, you're going to go to after this, Jesus is with us. Jesus is doing something more glorious here than was happening in the Nashville SC Stadium last night. Even in the normalness of our lives, that when we gather in discipleship groups, which we're going to start doing here very soon, Jesus is there. This Jesus is there. He's among us, doing his work among us. When you're sitting at the dinner table and you're, you're, you're throwing up your prayer before dinner and in Jesus' name, we tag it on, amen, great, let's go. He's with us. That Jesus, when you, when you were praying like that, when you're praying the most desperate prayers you have ever prayed and you're wondering, is Jesus with me? Does Jesus hear me? Is Jesus here? Yes, 
this Jesus who is among the lampstands, who is among us, he is, he is with you. That's the, that's the Jesus that, that John is pulling back the covers on. And here's the first thing that our Jesus says in this book. Well, John says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me saying, fear not. Fear not. But to come into the presence of a Jesus who is that glorious, that all we can do is fall on our faces before him as though we're dead. And in that moment, Jesus gets down next to John and he puts his hand on his right shoulder. And he says, fear not. Don't be afraid. Is that what you expected Jesus to say? Don't be afraid. And let's be honest, there's a lot in this world to be afraid of, isn't there? And there's a way in which fear uh, is a gift from God. It teaches us wisdom. Like recently when we were in California, I tried to take my daughter out on a kayak, and the people who rented us the kayak wouldn't rent us the kayak. They kept saying, well, you know, the currents, the wind, it'd be too dangerous. And I'm like, yeah, 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 but I really want to do this. They're like, oh, okay. So I went and thought about it a little bit more. I looked at the waves. I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah, I can do this. And I went back in and said, no, I really want to do it. And they said, no, really, we're not going to rent this kayak to you. It's dangerous. And then what we found out later is that someone had seen a great white shark right in that area. Okay, I'm glad they did not rent me the kayak, right? Because the person who was renting it to me was aware that there was a bigger danger here than I was ready to be aware of. And it probably would have scared away the rest of their business, but they wouldn't let me take my kid out there. Okay, I get it. Thank you. And fear is helpful in that sense, is, is, is it, teaches us, uh, it teaches us wisdom. There's danger out there. That's good to know. And yet, it would be possible that I would say, well, okay, I'm never going to get in the kayak again because there are sharks out there. That I would say, I'm never going to go in the ocean again because there are sharks out there. I'm going to let my kids go into the ocean or see the ocean because they might want to get in and there are sharks there. Okay, now that fear has overflowed its God-given banks and is now controlling my life in a totally different way. And let's be honest, it can be difficult in, like, the, in the real world of our lives and our fears to know which is which. And when our fears have crossed over from something that is teaching us wisdom into something that is now controlling our life. But when fear controls our life, oh man, you guys know what that experience is like? This guy Daryl Johnson who I talked about it earlier, he says fear is a powerful force. Fear can keep us from doing what is right and it can make us do things that we know are wrong. Fear is an incredibly powerful force in our lives. And when that kind of fear seeps in and takes over, takes over, what we start to do is we, we begin to imagine a picture of the future, don't we? Because fear is always about the future. Even when it's about the past, it's about the future because it's about what happened in the past repeating itself in the future. So when I'm being consumed by fear, I'm creating this picture of the future and I'm imagining all of the horrible things that can happen. But what I never imagine when I'm imagining the future and I'm afraid of it is I'm never imagining God in that future with me. This Jesus is nowhere in that future. In that future, I'm alone. Of course, that's a terrifying place. And what our enemy knows 
We'll get into that a little bit later in the book of Revelation. We have a spiritual enemy. What he knows is that there is nothing he can do to take away what Jesus has done for you. Nothing. First Peter, uh, Peter tells us this in, in one of his letters. He says, you've been given everything you need for life and godliness. You. You have everything you need for life and godliness. All of it. But when fear creeps in, it starts to make us forget that we've been given everything that we have, that everything that we need for life and godliness. But instead, we become focused on the future where we think, what if I don't have all of those things, even though we've been promised them? And into the middle of that story, Jesus comes and he puts his hand on our right shoulder and he says, fear not. Like John has fallen on the ground. The only way for Jesus to get there and put his right hand on his shoulder is to get down there with him. To whisper in his ear, fear not. But he's calling John out of this fear into a different reality. And then he says this, fear not, I am the first and the last, the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades. He's taunting death. He's saying this thing that is really our ultimate fear, the fear of dying, the fear of the nothingness after death, the fear of, of, of uh, being alone, of being isolated, the fear of it being over, that fear of death, the fear of judgment. Jesus is saying, oh, I've been there. I've done that. And I rose from the dead and I took care of it. And now I have the keys. Now I have the keys and I can let out whoever I want. And I've let you out. You're free. You're free. That that power of death, you, if, if, we, if Jesus does not come back in the next hundred years, uh, we, will all, we will all die. That's true. What he is saying is that reality is not the end of our reality. That we don't have to be afraid of that moment, that that moment actually brings us into a, a hope that is more glorious than we could ever ask or imagine. And that hope that our Jesus has conquered death is the hope that has animated the church all the way from its very beginning. Think of the Apostles' Creed that we studied two summers ago. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. That's our hope. It's always been our hope. And that Jesus shakes the keys that he taunts death. It frees us from so many fears because that fear of death is, is, is the source of so many of the other fears in our lives. Johnson goes on to say, all fear is firmly rooted in the fear of death, the fear of criticism, the fear of rejection, the fear of financial loss, the fear of pain. They're all at rock bottom, the fear of death. And Jesus is saying to John and to the churches that he's writing to who are in the midst of persecution, who are being pulled into all of these false teachings, who are being told, hey, the way you live doesn't really matter. All of those kind of draws of the world, in the middle of all of that, Jesus is saying, you need to see something. You need to see me, the risen Christ, in all of my glory. But you need to hear me say, he's saying to these churches, you need to hear me say, fear not, I've conquered death. Because that conquering of death deals with all of these other fears. That conquering, death, conquering of death is what gives us the strength uh, to persevere in the midst of trial. It's the fact that Jesus has conquered the grave that allows us to hold on to what we know is true even when, uh, it's, even when there's a cost to that. It's, it's the hope that Jesus has conquered the grave that allows us to forego uh, living for ourselves in this present moment. 
that allows us to say, I'm willing to let pain and suffering come into my life uh, in, this, in this moment because I know that, that this pain and suffering is temporary. Because I have a hope that my Jesus has conquered death. But as we start to marinate in that reality, oh, we're invited into now living in the freedom of the children of God. Freedom from the fear of death. That's what the revelation of, of this Jesus does for us. Is it, it pulls back the covers on who he is. It shows us him in all of his glory and it invites us uh, into the freedom of the children of God. Let me pray for us. Jesus, just confess uh, how uh, inadequate our words are, my words are, uh, to this image that you have given us of you as, as your resurrected self, as you even now are, uh, Lord, as you are now among us. Uh, Lord, as we sing, as we respond to you, uh, would you warm our hearts with these images, with these pictures of you, with this reality of who you are, uh, would you draw us closer to yourself through it? Lord, would you, uh, even as we worship, be freeing us from the fears that so easily entangle us uh, and trap us uh, and trap us? Let me pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.